Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. And if you just read you, this is a test transmission. It opens a new and, I think, exciting chapter in the story of radio. This is going to be a service to provide a tremendous amount of information and satisfy a lot of different interests. I was always itching to shake it during a program. In the air, on the river and underground. We hope very much that uh, Derek can hear us. Can you hear us? From Resonance 104.4 FM and social broadcasts, this is Transmitter. I'm Lucia Scadzocchio from Social Broadcasts and I've been dedicating this season of Transmitter to conversation. I've been having conversations about conversation with people who've been thinking deeply about the art of conversation and integrating this into their work. The next hour is a conversation with artist, writer and Unitarian minister Claire MacDonald who's been leading a congregation at Lewisham Unity since 2017. I was really interested to talk to Claire MacDonald, who was actually introduced to me through Donald Hatera, who is, I guess, an arts critic. But the reason I know him is that he is a, a regular participant in a radio conversation uh, project that I've been running for the last five years, which is all about intergenerational conversation and allowing people the space to just talk with each other in a kind of very light touch facilitated way. And he introduced me to you, Claire. The few interactions we have, I, I feel like there's a lot of common ground even though we come at things from a very different place I think we're inspired by many of the same things so thank you for being here with me. Thank you for inviting me. I guess shall we start at the beginning um, <laughs> or we'll work our way backwards why don't you explain to us what you're doing now and then we'll kind of work backwards and figure out how you got there and then why why this conversation feels relevant. Well it's really interesting that you mentioned Donald Hutera actually because Donald is someone who I got to know in my days working as a performer and theatre maker in Ensemble Theatre and Donald wrote about the company that I was with Impact Theatre Cooperative and particularly about a work that we made with Russell Hoban, the writer called The Carrier Frequency. And Donald and I then re-met several times. And last year he came on a project that I ran as an artist for the Live Art Development Agency on blessing and cursing. And he was one of 16, I think, artists who spent a whole weekend exploring the kind of place where sacred and social and creative artistic practice meet taking the idea of blessing one another, of the blessings in the world, of what it means to curse across traditions and religious traditions and artistic practices. And in a way, I was able to do that because as well as working as an artist and writer for the past five years or so, I've also been a Unitarian minister and I trained at Harris Manchester College in Oxford 
and did a theology degree, postgraduate degree, in the way that the three Abrahamic faiths, Islam, Judaism and Christianity, have engaged with the violence of modernity. So big kind of existential and practical issues. And now I am minister to a congregation in South London, Lewisham Unity, which is on Bromley Road in the south of Catford. So I find myself at the meeting point of many different threads, if you like, holding them loosely together. I had to look up what Unitarianism is. (laughs) I'd never actually come across it and it's quite intriguing. Could you give us a little bit of a short explanation? Would you call it a faith? What, What is it? I think you would call it a faith. And I mean, I'll say something a little bit more about that perhaps a bit later. But I was just wondering if you know Conway Hall, for instance, just off Red Lion Square in London. Yes. Because Conway Hall at the end of the 18th century was the home of radical Unitarianism. And Unitarianism, like lots of kind of dissenting groups and practices and churches kind of grew up at a time when everybody who was a Christian at least was part of some kind of church, the beginning of the 17th century, if you like. And Unitarianism followed the new science and new ideas about ways to make a difference socially and social change together into support for things like the French Revolution, individual rights, feminism, Mary Wollstonecraft was a Unitarian, for instance. Richard Price is a great Unitarian leader who's buried in Bunhill Fields, right beside the Barbican. So it's a very non-conformist kind of thread, countercultural thread throughout social thinking and social practice. And like other non-conformists and Jews and Catholics, Unitarians were at that point not allowed to graduate from Oxford and Cambridge, weren't allowed into the professions, and so created all kinds of alternative ways of being and thinking and doing together. They created things called dissenting academies. They founded the Guardian newspaper, the Courtaulds, the Wedgwoods, um, all kinds of big families that were in trade with Unitarians. And then throughout the 19th century, they kind of went on a journey where they encountered world religion. They were among the first people to translate the sutras, for instance. Buckminster Mm -hmm. Fuller, who the the great designer is a Unitarian, and his aunt, Margaret Fuller, was one of the first early transcendentalist Unitarians, Thoreau and Emerson, Frank Lloyd Wright. All of these people were Unitarians because I think they wanted to kind of find a way in which consciousness and social practice and social change and innovation all came together. And and I guess that's what attracted me to it. So at what point is that in your life? I grew up in dissenting religion, in a sense. My mum grew up in a communist background, and we were very much a kind of left-leaning family as children. Mm-hmm. And I went to a congregational church in South London. And that was very much as well about community and about engaging in big ideas it was about holistically thinking what it means to be a human being and then I kind of left it and got into theatre and ways of being an artist really and came back to it later in my life really in this century if you like when I'd been living in America and it was living in the United States I I often say I'm the only British person I know who went to America and kind of became transformed by American religiosity. (laughs) But um, it was living in America many, many ways that made me understand what religion was really about. And that kind of brings me back in a way to the faith 
question at the very beginning of your question about Unitarianism, because Mm -hmm. a really important moment for me was when I encountered the great African-American musicologist, Bernice Reagan Johnson, at George Mason University, where I was teaching art. And she gave a talk about civil rights and faith. And she basically said that there's no civil rights without faith, because when reason ends, when you come up against the wall, when hope has actually been exhausted, then you have one more step, and that's the step of faith. that really really influenced me and I I kind of knew that it could be reclaimed from kind of patriarchal institutional authority and that there were places to do that and from that moment I kind of set out on a journey and first of all I set out as on that journey as a writer because I then edited a series of essays on religiosity on religion on so on art and religion and then kind of yeah then kind of dipped my toe in that dirty water much more deeply (laughs) and then so went on to study is that part of becoming a reverend you have to do some sort of theological study or how do you get yeah different religions are different but but um i think all to become a minister which is a term you know used across faith so you know rabbis are ministers as well and imams are ministers too and all of us do some sort of training and it's partly about the fact that congregations are very, very sort of heterodox places. They bring together people in their brokenness and their big emotions and the questions that they have in life. So there's a lot of training which is about finding ways to walk with people, not to fix them, not to find solutions, but to kind of be with people. And then the other thing is to be kind of theologically literate. So I did a master's degree across the Abrahamic faith, which was amazing. I had an Orthodox rabbi for Judaism, a scholar from Damascus, for Islam and then a bunch of extraordinary Jesuits for Christianity. So I kind of felt very lucky, really. And was there anything about those three religions that surprised you that, or, or maybe a common thread that, you know, perhaps we, we forget often how close these three religions are? They are really close. So I, I knew much less about Islam. My husband's Jewish, so I knew a little bit about Judaism. But I knew very little about Islam. I didn't know really how much Jesus and Mary or the sort of stories of, of the Christians and the figures that Christians revere also were part of Islam. And I also hadn't I hadn't really understood the emotional, divine and, and intellectual depth of Islam as a extraordinary creative world. Muslims talk about the way in which the world from Belgrade to Bengal has has in many ways been lost to us, that we're not aware of the kind of riches of Islam. And the conversation that took place across those three faiths and amongst the people where I was at Heathrop College that took place, I think think that surprised me too. It's really rich. It's about telling stories to one another about who we are and where we've come from. And and telling those stories again and again and again and looking at them in different ways. I think I was surprised at how liberal Jesuits were, by the way, that really, really surprised me. (laughs) I think that whole notion of conversation and of telling stories to one another is really, really important. I mean, you know, I could, I, I don't want to rant about that, but in a way, 
certainly in this country, that religion's been relegated to a very ideological place, to a very particular place. And I also really understand the way in which so many people have been hurt by the institution of many kinds of churches that have been absolutely patriarchal and authoritarian and abusive. And like so many institutions and so many cultural spaces, I kind of feel that that we can claim that collectively and make those spaces different because whatever it is that religion is is something that isn't anywhere else and and that's something i could talk about it's not as if it's occupying a, it's mirroring other things especially as somebody who's been on the left for a long time i kind of feel that we can be very reductive about the way that we approach the utopian change we hope to bring about and I think that we really need a big touch of the nourishment of the human spirit as well. And the human spirit is something I think we can all get behind and believe in. And I think there's something also to be said about communal ritual, the bringing of people together, something that you've said also, I read somewhere, creating that conversational space across communities is really important and just holding that space. So it's not necessarily, you know, people might not necessarily believe in the same beings, but, um, you know, having that kind of space to to have conversation and to share ritual. Is, I agree. I yeah. mean, I think there's two things. First of all, I think belief and faith are really different. I, mean, I think we all have faith, faith that the sun will rise tomorrow, faith that our futures can be better, um, faith that we can, you know, shape the future we want to see together. And that's very different from belief in aliens or supernatural beings. So I don't think religion's really fundamentally based on on that kind of belief necessarily. It's a space for exploring sometimes the edges of, of human consciousness or human possibility, I think, too. So yeah, I think I think that's really important. The other thing is I think conversation is a kind of profound social ritual. And and I was really influenced by the philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah. And he's got this whole notion of conversation as being, he says its old meaning is how to live together. And it's not about dialogue. It's about being able to listen and respond and, and really share, I think. That brings us beautifully to the main topic <laughs> yeah. um, around conversation. And I think, I mean, we, we spoke um, before about mm. um the the I guess organization on being that um Krista Tippett is kind of founder of and they have this wonderful guide to having better conversation and from your your work and and what I've read about the the way that you minister this seems to fit perfectly so I'll just read you these six pillars because I think I think it just makes complete sense so the the first one is obviously using words that matter and she quotes um Elizabeth Alexander who calls um these words words that shimmer so sort of words that have the power to convey real truth. So obviously the words we use are really important. And then hospitality, making people feel comfortable, I think is super important and creating the space to do that. And then humility, what they say here, and I agree, it goes with curiosity, surprise, delight, and also just giving space to somebody uh, to be able to get into that dance of, of conversation, allowing it to kind of take form. And then patience, which, 
you know, we can get frustrated if someone doesn't agree. Generosity as well, also important. And then um, finally, adventurous civility. So not just being nice, but so again, it's that humanity, isn't it? Just kind of really properly listening and creating new possibilities as well. And, and perhaps um, being open to being changed by a conversation or, or being touched by a conversation. So when I read that, I just kind of thought, well, actually, there's something quite, it, it kind of fits with the Unitarian structure as well. There's something quite similar in that, in, in those pillars. There really is. I mean, two things come to mind. They're wonderful, aren't they, to be reminded of them. And also to be reminded that they apply to all religions. They apply to they apply to all kinds of communities because they're about values and they place values on the table that are about our commons, our kind of commonality. And they remind me of a phrase and the name of a book, actually, by the theologian Ivan Illich, yeah. which is called Tools for Conviviality. And conversation is a tool for conviviality, something that enables us to live together well. And Unitarianism, there's, there's, another, there's another book, a historian called John Mee wrote a book called Conversable World. And that's about the history of Unitarianism. So Unitarians in their, you know, at their sort of big radical height in the late 18th century, that moment of amazing change, set up conversation clubs. And conversation itself was also a symbol of fairness and equality, allowing people to have a voice. Those things feel to me to be profoundly important today, that marginalised people should have a voice, that we should all have a voice at the table, and that we should set that table so that everyone can come to the table. We might not all agree about the menu or what our likes and dislikes are, but we can come to the table. It's such a radical idea, I think. And so needed right now because, you know, we're just becoming more and more polarised. And I guess there are less places where people are able to mix with perhaps people from of different ages but also people have different opinions you know we see this especially on social media but I think it's this is also happening in real life just because of the way society is structured I guess there's less and less opportunity to mix with people who aren't like us so that kind of restricts and the 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 richness of the kind of conversations we can have because we're just surrounded by the same people all the time I think it really does I I think that idea that it's really important to try to have public conversations and private conversations and conversations at home everywhere with people who are different from us is really really important and and you know I I actually having as a mission, if you like, socially, having conversations across all kinds of lines. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a really, really important thing for all of us to be doing. And in some ways, I'm I'm wondering if, yeah, I mean, in the past, certainly in my own life, that I think growing up as a child, I think that we didn't have that many conversations with people who were different from us. We certainly felt in our kind of family that we were very ordinary and that those in power were those in power. They wouldn't necessarily ever allow us into power. Mm. And that now we really want to have, everybody wants to be part of the conversation. We're not always sure how to have the conversation without shouting, but you know, (laughs) that's really the case. But I also feel that Black Lives Matter has really led on the idea of conversation as well, because those pillars that you 
you read, they could also be applied to what Black Power and Black Lives Matter have really developed over the last few decades. Ideas about care, generosity, listening to one another and this faith in going forward together. I'm going to come back to that, but before I forget, yeah, I'm sure, going to sorry, go I'm backwards just... <laughs> again to um, so Ivan Illich's tool for conviviality. Yeah. I'm glad you brought him up because mm. last year I discovered this book and I... I was at a radio conference, actually, and it was all about kind of radio as a convivial tool. And then this kind of made me realise that actually social broadcasting, what what I've been kind of developing, is definitely aligned with this idea of creating tools uh, and using radio as a way to create that convivial space. What I'm suggesting is that by taking radio out of the studio and into kind of more community spaces where all sorts of people mix. So they might be parks or it might be, I don't know, a shopping centre, something like that, or places where people just cross paths. So there's there's more of a chance of people who are occupying the same space but who aren't necessarily in the same communities to mix. And that's where I like to record and put perhaps a mobile radio setup or or kind of bring radio into that space so that's how I translated that tool for conviviality and how that might work so I I feel that perhaps a place of worship and gathering is also could also be that well I think it's a node on that I mean I I agree with you I love the idea of the crossing paths and I agree I think a kind of convivial democratic radio it's amazing i mean we we live now in a great age of radio i just put an app on on my phone called radio garden where you can just kind of circulate around the world and listen to radio from everywhere and i think there are so many countries across africa for instance where radio is being used very democratically there are all kinds of ways in which radio isn't it it's not inherent in radio that it should be a democratic civil tool but it can be and one of the things I want to say about tools for conviviality it's very interesting is I went to a very interesting conference that used that name as well and actually a very interesting architectural historian called Joseph Rickworts was there who knew Ivan Illich and he spoke at the very end and what was so very clear was that his encounter with Illich was a kind of was if you like one about the generosity of the human spirit and the conference was great but it also by focusing on the idea of the tool it began to get more and more reductive. Mm. And I think that's really interesting because that Illich didn't mean tools in that way. He meant them in a very generative way. And it really brought back to me this sort of slight tension between a very, very secular society in which we, which is based on needs and tools and kind of fulfilling those needs. And one that's about not knowing what's ahead but trying to create the conditions in which we can grow things. And that's really important to me. And and I entered this church space, if you like, because I felt at different moments in culture, different spaces emerge. Theatre was one for me at one point, experimental theatre. They emerge as spaces in which collaboration can genuinely happen or conversation can genuinely happen. And Right now, those church spaces feel to me, and I don't not just churches, but other faith spaces, feel to me places where that can happen. Um, and it's partly because we're living in a very, very diverse culture where 
for most people in the world, their religious affiliation is a profound part of their identity and they bring that to London as well. So London is just full of really interesting threads of kind of spiritual connection and practice and ritual and so on. Yeah, so your church or what would you call it? Is it a church? We call our space Lewisham Unity. And I guess we call it a meeting house. It's a sort of gathering space. And yeah, that's what it is. It's a community gathering space. So this community gathering space yeah, in Lewisham. So who 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 um is it quite diverse in terms of the people that uh, go yeah, there? It's tight. It's very small. I mean when I came to Lewisham Unity, so the the history of that is it's in Catford. The Unitarians, as well as being a very sort of liberal and progressive group i mean they also in the late 19th century unitarians started something called the labor church which was actually allied very much to the labor movement and to workers rights but it's also been allied to the liberal party as well so it hasn't had a necessarily a party political affiliation but it's been very much allied to democracy and equality but it's also in terms of the way it does things if you like it was very allied to to church yeah let's say it's certainly in this country so to chapels um and to hymns and all kinds of other things and lewisham had had this chapel and then i think it was bombed i'm not quite sure and they bought a small house and that is the house that we now occupy and it's it's just a domestic house it's like a big domestic space and yeah it is a diverse community we do lots of different things there we've got a garden so we've got a garden project called just unity garden and it's a small but diverse and growing i think that's the big thing for us a lot of much younger people have come along families so do you think people are drawn to you because of the the community aspect as well as the more unity faith aspect what I'm getting at is that does it provide that kind of missing thing (laughs) I hope it does so so I think there are different kinds of people I think that are drawn to a community church like ours so quite often people who've had a religious upbringing but who have found it impossible to continue with that. So the LGBTQ plus identity and advocacy that Unitarianism has stood for for always is also something that's very important in the welcome that we give. And that's very important to people. And that can be a reason why people were not feeling welcome in other places. So that can be one thing. The other thing can be, and it's not so common here, very much more common in the US, a place for children to learn together ethics, values and fun. I mean, I would say that it's kind of almost allied to things like forest schools or woodcraft folk. And then people who are yeah, looking for community. And then a number of people who are kind of involved in quite new age religions as well want to celebrate something solstice or different things during the year and you feel they just don't have a place to locate a sort of green spirituality so it's a number of threads i think that come together but i think for us more and more at lucian unity it's about a wonderful quote i can't even quite remember it now by a favorite writer of mine ursula Le Guin, which is about combining activism and personal growth, combining the expansion of inner awareness with advocacy and social activism and finding growth and depth in both. And that's definitely where we stand. So people are becoming more attracted to coming to us 
because of that. And we've just started to realise we'd really like to grow that now. We feel confident enough that that's what we have to offer. And we often do workshops, for instance, with people. We did a workshop on Active Hope a few months ago, and the wonderful people who ran that, you know, would never come to, to a church, no matter that they were deeply spiritual in their approach. It just would put them off much, much too much. But we can connect to them. They don't need to. We don't need to persuade them about anything. I mean, we're already part of the same stream, if you like, the same same movement and so I think active hope is very much about hope for the future and being absolutely actively committed to shaping the future we want to see. So there's this activism thread mm. of, of, of doing not just philosophizing and theorizing and, and kind of writing things down but actually a, a call to action perhaps. Call to action yeah you asked me earlier what I was surprised about in the three faiths that I studied and I guess it would be that, that going to Heathrop College, which was run by Jesuits, that the depth of social activism there on AIDS communities, on poverty, on the conversation with refugees, with crisis in the Middle East. I mean, these were people who never spent their time just philosophizing, but always practiced. Mm. And I think that notion of that, that what religion can be about is practice. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh said that, I think, you know, it's about practice. And I think the belief thing, it sounds terrible. I mean, there's a, another phrase, which is that, you know, God may not be real, but God's love certainly is. And I think, you know, it's a metaphor, really, which doesn't lessen it in any way. You know, it's what Peter Berger, there's a great Lutheran theologian, he calls it the sacred canopy that we create imaginatively together and that we collectively commit to. I think that's a very beautiful way to put it as well. There isn't that much emphasis on, on the practice side. There's a lot on, around the faith and what do you believe in and often that part is forgotten. It's what, well, what do you practice, you know? Well, there is if you're outside it. I mean, I guess that's a surprise as well because actually what most faith communities are about is practice. Mm -hmm. And I think I also realised that very much when I was in the United States where there's very little woven social network, if you like, from the state. You can fall very, very far, very quickly. And I realized that faith communities were always, particularly in black communities, were always about holding up, about lifting up, about holding up, about holding things together, and always providing the practice of generosity and giving that sustains communities. But I've also found that here, I mean, it is actually faith communities that do so much of that giving. It's just if you're not part of it, then it looks like it's about whether you believe in the Virgin Mary, but really it's much more about what we share together and our commonality and our commons and the common good. Yeah, that's it. It really is. Hmm. You just mentioned, I was, I was going to go come back to this, so it's, yeah. it's good that you just mentioned. So your time in the States, religion seems to be much more present religious practice and church and what people believe in it seems to be more upfront there's so much to that and you're you're absolutely right it is very very present in the culture very very present in the culture across the entire spectrum of social commitments if you like and beliefs for instance in the family or in particular ways of of being a gender or any of these things i mean they 
religion isn't excluded from any of the ways in which we might be being human and what we might do and ethics and values is absolutely scored into American life and there are many many reasons for that one of those from a Christian point of view being that what was exported to the United States was a non-established church so whereas what we have in this country particularly as a church in which the Queen is also um, the head of she's the head of state but she's also a figurehead of the church as well the church the church of england is the established church so when i said that unitarians and jews and catholics and other nonconformists weren't allowed to become part of the professions or even to graduate from university until the 19th century that's why the establishment was the church and they also dominated the law um, and all the professions as well so we've had a very different kind of religious experience in this country in America, the church is absolutely non-established and therefore could take root and spring up and grow in multiple forms. So that's one of the kind of very big differences. But also people brought their own religious faiths and commitments from all over the world. It's multiply religious, if you like. But there are all sorts of, all sorts of ways in which things that we have given to religion take place in the United States and are not cut off from the general culture. So one of those things is the relationship between poetry, avant-garde experiment and prophetic voice, for instance. So you would find artists as diverse on the spectrum as William Burroughs or John Cage or Meredith Monk, all working on prophetic voice, on ideas of fate, on existential states, on, you know, it's not cut off. It's absolutely woven into the kind of fabric of life. And it's also very much part of the way that race is manifest in America. In Christian terms, it's a very, very segregated culture, actually, between black churches and white churches. And that's so much to do with the settler culture that early America was and the way in which church and church authority was used against people. But it's also an enormously powerful, creative space. You know, there's no popular music, for instance, without church. None. <laughs> it's all there and it's very I don't know quite where I'm going with this thread but it's affected me very very deeply to realize that that it was so present it affected me very deeply and then I I became very affected or, or I was kind of influenced by somebody I've just mentioned Meredith Monk who grew up um, in an orthodox Jewish background and she comes from um, generation upon generation of cantors, singers, and then she became, like many modern Jews, a Buddhist as well. And she asked a question about what a congregation was or is as a very diverse kind of group of people in a space. And what was the difference between a congregation and an audience? And that led me to to edit a group of essays about that because it made me think about the kind of social process and practice of religion as well. And I did that in 2007. And I kind of brought together voices of artists 
and artist practices to to think about where they they come to bear on ritual on you know on conviviality on on community and on on, on religion radical catholics by the way as well like carita kent um all sorts of people but that's so interesting um i mean that's something i'm fascinated with is places that hold people coming together but also hold thought and uh, hold yeah. um, a space for that to happen you need these places and yeah. so much is kind of about that space whether it's created intentionally or mm-hmm. it just happens sometimes it just happens you know yeah exactly it does I think the congregation is being a kind of dynamic space where widely different experiences and points of view could come together it's a very ideal thing to say but you know, it can be that. But at the same time, I mean, one of the things that we're sort of absolutely fascinated by in this country, I think, I'm not quite sure why, is the American right-wing church. It's almost as if it's come to symbolize what religion is, I think. But it doesn't. (laughs) It's just a thing. But I think we're always fascinated by extremes. And yeah, I think that's So, you know, whether extreme. it's an American right-wing church or, you know, Orthodox Jewish synagogue or kind of um, yeah. ultra-religious Islam, you know, we're, it, it's, it's true. I guess where there are restrictions and rules and things become rigid, then it becomes fascinating because it's like, okay, it seems to be all about that rather than what the actual community and the congregation and what's happening. It kind of seems more about very uh, rigid belief system and activity. Yeah, or it might be. It's really interesting, isn't it, when we talk about practice because part of our family, the Jewish side of our family, is also orthodox now. There's lots of people moving towards kind of new orthodox what I notice in their community and lots of things that I, you know, when I think about what we share rather than what we don't share, I think that those communities often put together or adhere to observances and practices that are commonly held and then they allow you the space to grow. So you're not continuously making choices Mm. about so for instance in late capitalist society we might say that we you know we're continuously bound by consumer choices so these are often people who have decided not to be but to make real separations and observe common rituals and within that to then find a personal and a community space to grow other things that might be conviviality it might be a deeper sense of spirituality it might be care for one another I mean the problem with them often is that they are rigid as you say and that they're not welcoming to outsiders but some of what they have is really important I think it is about belonging there's another person that I I've admired for quite a long time called Charles Taylor with Stuart Hall and Raphael Samuel he was one of the founders of New Left Review and He's a Canadian Catholic, a Marxist, and he has written a great book actually called A Secular Age, in which he talks about this tension between the profound need for belonging and also our deep need for our own individual journey, our own individual story and our own individualism. But that freedom comes at a price. And so I think, you know, that's in a sense the tension we live with. And that's another, another writer called Amin Malouf, who said, freedom makes orphans of us all. And so what we're trying to do is to have our individuality and to retrieve 
a profound sense of community. I think that's what we're trying to do at the moment. And I, I would have the faith that we can do that. We can do that. that. That's where we are, some of us at least, are trying to head. Because otherwise, I think we feel we're, we're pretty lost, actually, in, in this kind of very, very, very brutal late capitalist culture that we're part of at the moment. Yeah, and it, and it this is, is a rant. I'm afraid, <laughs> but it is it is brutal, and I and, and I totally yeah, understand brutal. that the problem of this freedom and and not having yeah. any boundaries because you know I think even from a on a creative level, you know, I'm sure you've had this as an artist. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need structure and deadlines and rules to be creative, and and without them, it's very difficult to know where to start without some sort of something holding you. And so it's kind of a natural state, isn't it, to, to, to need to be held and, and have something. We need to be held, I think. It's we need to, we, we need to be held. And I think, uh, you know, I, I mean, a great deal of, of contemporary art is based around exactly that idea of, of exploring what practices are. It could be exploring what rituals could be. It's exploring what structures are and how to enable things to emerge from those rather than say from individual inspiration. Mm. It's really different from that old fashioned liberal idea that all boundaries can go or that, you know, we just kind of do what we want. We now, some of us now see that as being a sort of neoliberal idea that doesn't work anymore. But with that, we've kind of got to face some of the really difficult questions that then emerge about the body, about sexuality, about gender, about democracy, about the end of life, about mortality. And I think that we we are scrabbling around to try and find somewhere to have that conversation really authentically and really in depth without subscribing to a kind of value-free set of, you know, needs-based, you know, or a needs-based agenda. So if you like, for me, that that's part of the work that being part of a faith community is part of, I think. is It is a place where people come when they have a huge issue in their life, when they have a terminal diagnosis, for instance, or an enormous crisis of identity or a crisis of gender or, you know, or their life has fallen apart as well as being a place where you come to, to, to have fun and, you know, to express yourself and manifest, you know, creativity as well. There's something we haven't spoken about and I yeah. think we, that we, we can't really ignore <laughs> it because we're living in this yeah. strange time. People have had a lot more time to reflect and there's been this interesting situation where we're needing to connect but community and that kind of real life connection is more difficult and and Mm -hmm. sometimes impossible for some people so what you've been providing as a space and also accompanying people through this kind of journey now has to be done in a very different way and I just wondered what your experience of that has been over lockdown and over this period and and whether there's some learning to be had and changes made of of how those connections are made and how people can have these conversations differently perhaps. I think there's something really interesting and important in what you're saying yes I mean we are having conversations differently we're in different rooms. We're in virtual rooms often now as well. 
There's so many interesting and surprising things about it, aren't there? I mean, first, one of the things that surprised me, actually, in some ways, when I think about it, is the way that we have assumed that this is something very, very new. So I'm, I'm quite interested in the history of technologies, particularly recording technologies, actually. And I think about the time when recording first happened, when, of course, it allowed the voices of the dead to be heard because you can recall people you can hear them later and so there was a sort of rise in an interest in consciousness itself and in um, you know telepathy and telephones and telepathy and all kinds of things were kind of brought together but we've had telephones and recorded conversation for a very very long time we've been doing virtual for well over 100 years maybe 150 years and actually our entire sense of time has been changed during that time so in some ways i'm i'm not sure that it was quite as new as we felt it was so that's one thing and in our own community we turned to zoom very quickly and held our gatherings in a zoom space and i think we've found that that's had it's had its challenges mostly technical but it's also had its particular intimacy. It's actually been able to to grow listening, for instance, in new ways. So I think it's actually been a time of real connection for us as a community. My issues with it are not really to do with what it is as an enabling technology. They're to do with who owns it. And that question about that a kind of new technologies that should, if you ask me, be collectively held, democratic and innovative, are being held by, owned by very, very few people who've also chosen. Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote this book on um, surveillance capitalism, says that, you know, they've kind of denied us a future tense because they've actually taken so much data from us that they have the power to predict our likes and dislikes and everything that we do. So for me, the issue with what's happened to us in COVID is a lot to do with what late stage surveillance capitalism is doing with us right now. But as an experience in community, and I think we're just at the beginning of this, I think we've found it a very creative way to engage for those of us who've been able to. So all of the other things that are happening around where we are in South London, for instance, digital poverty is enormous. So the people who can't engage with that are simply excluded from it. I don't know if that's kind of what you what Yeah, you no, I was just wondering getting at. Exactly. It was sort of wondering, you know, doing all of this stuff online and, and kind of speaking in groups on conference calls. Mm-hmm. Will that change the way we communicate and gather potentially? Yeah. I'm wondering. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I mean I don't know because I don't think I don't think we know. I mean it I think what I would, what I hope for is that we can have a kind of blended future in this so that we are able to meet in person and meet online in different ways. So I'm, I'm wondering whether the way that we used to gather will happen or whether we will, actually I've been involved in something else which is about, which is related to this on Culture Declares Emergency, which is about the nature of the streets and who can voice the streets. So 
that's been really interesting. And we've been thinking about the way in which future gathering might be walking from place to place and the conversations that we have between places and the in-between much more than it is about indoor gathering. So um, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of, and it's making me think a lot about outdoor spaces, gardens and the street and absolutely the streets because the streets are not value free of course you know they're very different in terms of their sense of welcome of who can be there of race of gender of age of all kinds of things so i think that those gatherings in public might become important to us i'm really uncertain about where we might go in the future with this but I also have a kind of deep belief in our creativity and our in the way in which we can actually shape really really good new ways of communicating. I don't I don't see it as altogether negative, but I do see as very very negative the question of ownership um, and control. That frightens me much much more than anything else. It's a whole nother conversation really about how do we how do we manage our individuality and our communities ethically in such a vastly surveyed culture? And also the ways that we use spaces, meeting space. Anyway, I was just going to go back to that, the idea of using outdoor space differently mm. um, and perhaps using it better. Perhaps it will be the renewal of the kind of public square, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, community spaces. That, I think that's something I've always loved. I think the problem here is the weather. Uh, we can't have that kind of Mediterranean town square vibe where four generations kind of mix quite happily and just all hang out. It'd be wonderful if that would become more of a norm here, but I just think that we're kind of restricted a little bit by um, the cold and the rain. But, you know, it has been interesting, the kind of renewal of the use of parks and, you know, people meeting much more readily in open spaces and not necessarily mixing with strangers, but mixing with each other. And perhaps the next step will be more public mixed gatherings in, in open space. I don't know. I mean, that that's definitely um, one way things could go. I'm really wondering as you're talking, you know, what kind of toolkit we need to do that really. And, and again, you know, sort of deliberately using the word tool and, because it feels certainly to me that, you know, we've been going through a very an experimental period of gathering in different ways, all of us, and not to do with my community alone. We've gone through an experimental period and I, I really wonder how how we how we're going to conduct ourselves well, because I think it's possible in these new spaces even with the weather we have, that I think we can still do that. So, yeah, I think that's another really important thing for the future, the way we gather, the way we travel together and the way that we gather. They feel like really important questions, actually, for us in future. And I think they're really deep questions. It's funny, isn't it, that these really simple things are actually really deep questions about what it means to be human together, just, you know, how we gather in public space. It may look really different in future. But I I want to think that there's a really hopeful and creative way forward for that. And again, you know, part of becoming part of a kind of faith-based community was the faith in in the possibility of that. We often begin from a point of view of what's wrong with what we're doing now and how we might be able to, you know, make it better. But 
I kind of want to see it from the point of view of our creativity and what we do well together and what therefore what we can take into the future and add to that, if you like. There are some positive things that we've learned. Yeah. I was just thinking about this public space thing again, about the fact that we started gathering in spaces where there wasn't a capitalist agenda so that you didn't yes. have to buy something. Mm-hmm. And exactly. that's, that's a big shift, you know. Mm-hmm. It had yeah. been so much geared the other way, even in parks and everywhere. It was all about, yeah. you know, you had to go and sit and have your coffee or your drink or your ice cream or whatever, or go to a shopping mall. And that suddenly was impossible. So people had to find other ways to gather. And there's something interesting in that. There's a learning from it. You know, you don't you don't have to buy to mix and hang out. Just before I became, before I undertook ministry training, I had, a, had two very prophetic dreams. And in one of my dreams, I was in a town and in this town, which I was very familiar with, and it was kind of summery, uh, candlelight was the name for a time of day. So everybody would say, I'll meet you at candlelight, or we'll do that at candlelight. And everybody knew that candlelight was the moment at which you could see a candle begin to glow. And at candlelight, everyone in this town laid down their bags on corners and sang together. You know, it was quite a long time ago now, five or six years ago, and it feels like such a prophetic dream because, <laughs> you know, I kind of felt that's where I wanted to live, in a place where people could do that, and that was nourishing. And you just, you know, at twilight, you sang a song and then you picked up your bags and went home again. And there's something about that as a kind of form of gathering where you come together with people, with strangers, but you know what to do. And that's what I think is really important, that you have some kind of ritual, a time of day and something to do. You don't need to constantly ask the question of whether, you know, in order to do it, you have to believe something special. You can just do it and then go home. And that feels to me to be important, actually. final thing that I haven't asked you about which I'm curious about yeah I saw that you you had this residency called host it's a sort of radical listening project at LADA you mean at the live the live art development agency that's a little story in itself the live art development agency is an organization started by Lois Keenan and Catherine Ugu and it's really a place for all kinds of people who don't feel they fit anywhere else to make art in time and manifest art live in ways that are quite new, quite experimental, and increasingly are often to do with advocacy with communities and individuals who feel marginalized. And I was already taking part in a social action project in Bethnal Green on Mansard Street in the only domestic mission that Unitarians ever ran, a big old church. And we were running a project called Simple Gifts with Rob Gregson and Anne Howell, two Unitarians, which is really about sharing tables, sharing community lunch Mm. every Thursday. And actually we do have a blog on that called Simple Dish Stories. There was a huge space upstairs in which nothing much was going on and so I was able to invite the live art development agency 
into that space and that's now their home and that was where we did the blessings and cursings project actually to take it back to where we began this conversation and they then invited me to be thinker in residence and what we were going to do is one of our thinker in residence events couldn't happen under covid I'd invited the historian Carolyn Steedman to come and give a talk uh, to commemorate the life of another social activist, Nassim Khan, about who can tell whose story. And that was really part of thinking about, could we set up a listening project there called Host, in which we begin to gather the voices that have been present in this extraordinary building, which has been host to all kinds of different people. And when you have a happy welcoming meeting between young trans people and Bengali Muslim women who are meeting together on the ground that how do we feel safe in the street with what we're wearing? You really feel that you're generating really genuine conversations in a space where people would not otherwise be able to do that. For me, that was, if you like, the blessing of Mansford Street. It's been an extraordinary project there, but we haven't yet recorded that. They often say that a minister is a host and guest in a congregation, actually. And I think that that idea of how we host, you know, I think that's part of what we've been talking about, that sort of sense of, I, I'm kind of, it's like a mission, isn't it? The, the mission is how we gather, it's how we host, it's how we care for one another. I've got this other big thing about religion that, and about art that, and about rituals. <laughs> the first time I ran a funeral, I, I conducted a funeral, was in Epping Forest for an artist, actually, who died. And as I was in that space, you know, which was full of artists and their children, I began to think that other people developed this ritual and made this space and put their footprints here because they knew that we would need to do this. And that's in another way what religion is. It's people putting their footprints down because they know that we will all go through trauma and we'll all go through crisis and we'll all go through joy and we all need somewhere to gather. And again, it's about that holding, isn't it? So that... yeah those rituals are already there you don't have to invent them it's holding you to enable you to to mourn or to celebrate or whatever it is that you're you're doing in that it moment. really is for me none of this is about just anything goes it, I kind of feel we're entering a world where we need to to state values but somehow they need to be dynamic they need to be dynamic and creative it, this whole thing because that's what happens when you gather and you converse that they do get renewed they get spun don't they in new ways i think hopefully i think this is a perfect place to end i to think add. there's always more and yeah. i i think that that's a really important thing that conversation and is about in a way revisiting all kinds of ground it's like touching on things again you know touching on footprints touching on other conversations because it's always about taking that into the next conversation exactly. and, and giving that sort of nourishment to the next thing that one's doing so thank you so much Lucia it's a really beautiful conversation oh thanks Claire it's been wonderful and I feel like it's opened the doors for a lot more and that's that's what a good conversation is about so yes that's great thank you are we going to stop there then yeah I'm Lucia Skadzokyo and you've been listening to Transmitter from Social Broadcasts and I've been in conversation with artist and Unitarian minister Claire MacDonald. All the details of what you've heard will be available on the Transmitter tab of socialbroadcasts.co.uk where you can also subscribe to our newsletter and catch up on previous episodes. 
I'll be back with more conversations about the art of conversation soon. Until next time, happy listening.